That is a great story, isn't it? Um, a really significant thing can happen when we take that first step. When we take a selfless act, uh, a, a tremendous ripple effect uh, can occur. And um, I'm uh, grateful for uh, Lorenzo's story. And, um, and I'm proud of uh, our church family as to how we have been growing in becoming the kind of church to reach out to those who, for whatever reason, feel like they may be on the margin and uh, taking that first step, reaching out and uh, just bringing them here into the community of God's people. And that's happening more and more and more. I've seen that, especially uh, in this series that we're in through the life of this amazing heroine, uh, Ruth. And um, the reason why I know that is happening because... uh, the News Gazette talked about it this morning. I don't know if you've read your Sunday paper yet, but uh, on section F, page one in the living section, there is an article about the agape feasts that have been occurring uh, among churches in our community. And we hosted one here at Windsor Road not too long ago. And so um, Paul Wood from the paper I wrote a very pleasant article about that. And the very best quotes in that article come from our community outreach director, Lisa Sheltra. And so uh, just we're growing in terms of being the kind of congregation to reach out and to encourage, to encourage those who for whatever reason feel on the outside uh, so that they can rub shoulders with the people of God and, with, and see the face of Jesus. And the word that describes that, church family, is a word that we have been learning here the last month. And it is a, it's not a word in our culture. It's a word that reaches to another culture. It is the word, you've got to put your hand over your mouth when you say it. That's right, chesed. That's it, chesed. And we are going to, we've just been learning wonderful dimensions of this, this, this rich Hebrew word, loving kindness, steadfast love, mercy, grace. And yet we've, we're going to turn this diamond one more time as we conclude uh, uh, the book of Ruth. Ruth gets married today. All right? Spoiler alert. Ruth gets married And I want you to see that in Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses 13 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn there. The Old Testament book of Ruth, you'll find that. You'll find that on page uh, 190 of your church Bibles. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, you know you can take that home with you. Put your name in it. Call it yours. Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 will be our scripture reading as we conclude the life of this amazing woman who was an outsider, an immigrant, and who became the grandmother of Israel's greatest king. Today Ruth gets married. Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. See? told you. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord. Now, Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law, recall. 
The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, that's Ruth, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. Seven was the perfect number of sons in that culture. Okay. Who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is God's word. Well, how did we get here? How did we get here? Wow. Let's review, all right? Uh, Let me review chapter one in one sentence. Here it is. An Israelite woman named Naomi and her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, returned from Moab to Bethlehem childless because their husbands have died and they are destitute in need of food. That's chapter one, one sentence. Chapter two, in one sentence. While in Bethlehem, Ruth comes upon the estate of a godly man, a man of standing named Boaz, who generously provides food during the harvest season, and as it turns out, is a relative of her deceased father-in-law. Chapter 2. Chapter 3. One sentence. At Naomi's direction, Ruth conducts a clandestine, high-risk, midnight mission where she proposes marriage to Boaz in order to preserve the family name. It's chapter 3, one sentence. And you already know what happened. Boaz marries Ruth, right? So... So, like, there's a gap, though, between the end of chapter 3 and this that I read here earlier. So, what, what, so like, what, 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 you know, what, what's happened in the gap here? Oh, here's what happened, you know. After the marriage proposal uh, by Ruth to Boaz, well, uh, Boaz declines. Why does he decline? Well, because although he is a relative of Elimelech, a kinsman redeemer, he's not the closest kinsman redeemer. And you understand this concept of kinsman redeemer. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. It was kind of a social safety net whereby if a man died and he had no male heirs, the man's closest relative, his brother, would then be uh, not required by law, but strongly encouraged to marry uh, his brother's widow and then produce a a male offspring, and that 
male offspring would then inherit all of the property which would be held in trust by that surviving brother who would pour a bunch of money into keeping the maintenance of that upkeep such at a time when that child, that male child would grow up and then take over the land, you see. And so Ruth and Naomi thought that maybe Boaz was the closest living relative. And so that's why the proposal came. And Boaz says, "Uh, thank you. I'm not the closest relative. There is a closer kinsman redeemer. There's a closer relative to Elimelech. And see, Boaz is a man of standing. He's a man of hesed. And hesed always does the right thing the right way. Following the protocols. And so he says, listen, we need to talk to this closer kinsman redeemer to see if he will assume responsibility. But Boaz says, listen, I'll take care of this. I'll make sure. Either way, Naomi's going to be taken care of. Either this guy is going to take care of the responsibilities or I will take care of the responsibilities if he doesn't. But you can make sure that Naomi understands either way she's going to be taken care of and and, and for all practical purposes, the book really ends, and everything's going to be okay at the end of chapter 3. It, there's resolution there. Yeah, but oh, we, we want Boaz to marry Ruth. See, we want that. We want Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan to get together at the top of the Empire State Building. We want that to happen. See, so how's that going to happen? That's the tension here. Well, it happens because the very next day in Ruth chapter 4, verse 1, Boaz goes to the city gates of Bethlehem. Now, the city gates of Bethlehem was more than simply a sign that says, Welcome to Bethlehem. It was a little more than that. It was, uh, well, it was city hall. It was the county courthouse. It was a place where commercial business transactions took place. Judicial activities took place. It was a place where a retail and commerce occurred. And it was a place where often a, a, a prophet of God would, would uh, 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 belt out a fiery message for God's people. And on top of all of that, it was a kind of a hub for gossip in the community. So it was, you know, it was really good urban planning. It was multi-use space. That's what it was. And so Boaz goes to the city gates and he parks it right here and he waits. Who's he waiting for? He's waiting for the kinsman redeemer to come through the gates. That's what he's waiting. And sure enough, look at chapter 4, verse 1. When the kinsman redeemer came along, Boaz stopped him. Verse 1 says, it says, come over here, my friend, and sit down. Now, that is not a translation. That is an interpretation. Probably all of your Bibles has the word friend. No matter if it's NIV or New American Standard Bible or English Standard Version, all of your Bibles has the word friend. That's a very generous term. The Old Testament comes to us by way of the Hebrew. And literally, the Hebrew says that Boaz said to him, Hey, so-and-so. He uses the phrase so-and-so. So-and-so, come on over here and sit down. So-and-so, why would he use the word so-and-so? For goodness sake, the guy's a relative of his. Doesn't he know his name? Is the family that big? What's going on over there? Ah, there's an intention there. 
Boaz knows his name. The author, the author of Ruth, and frankly, I don't know who the author of Ruth was. Go to Urbana Theological Seminary. You can find out the answer to that question. The author of Ruth wants to communicate a message with the phrase, so-and-so. What message is that? Keep reading. So Boaz calls so-and-so, personally, I like the word goober. (laughs) Goober, come over here and sit down. So he sits goober down, and then, right then, he goes and he picks out ten elders, ten of the leading elders of the city, you know, Kevin, Scott, Tim, uh, Jim, uh, 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 come on over, and gathers ten, and a committee is being formed here. And after the group is gathered, there's 12 of them now. And remember, this is in the public city gates. This is not the clandestine midnight threshing floor. This is in broad daylight. Boaz begins his speech. He looks to Goober. He says, okay, Goob, you know that Naomi has returned from Moab to Bethlehem. And she needs to sell the property since her husband Elimelech has died and she's destitute and you are the closest kinsman redeemer and you are first in line to purchase this property so that she can live off of the proceeds of that income and if you would like to exercise your right to purchase this property. Now is the time to do so. If you don't, that's fine. I'm in line behind you. What would you like to do? Well, Goober thinks to himself, what's there to think about? (laughs) Of course I'll redeem it. Verse 4, I'll redeem it. Now, no, the reader looks at that and says, "We, we don't want him to redeem it. We don't want him to redeem it. We just got kind of cringe, you know, because why? Because we, because we want Tom and Meg to get together. We want Tom, Tom to get together with, we, we do not want Meg to get together with Ernest Borgnine. We want Tom to get together with Meg. And so, so he said, I, I, I will redeem it. We cringe. But you see, Boaz is a hasad man and he's not going to cut corners. He's not going to cheat the system. He's going to do the right thing the right way. And so, he gives this person the opportunity. And this person says, I will redeem it. And we all cringe at that. But there was one person who did not cringe when Goober said, I will redeem it. You know who that person was? Boaz. He didn't cringe at all. No. Why? Because he knew that he was going to say that. He knew that he was going to say, I'm going to redeem it. Because he's his relative. He knows how he thinks. That's why. And Boaz is such a sharp man. He does not ask a question that he doesn't already know the answer to. He's sharp. He knew that that kinsman redeemer was thinking, well... This is a no-brainer. I mean, okay, I'll buy the property. I got to take care of this old widow who doesn't have any kids and who won't have any heirs at all. And afterwards, then the property will become mine. I'll put a little bit of money in. I'll get a big profit return. My estate holdings will grow. This is a no-brainer. Verse 4, I will redeem it. Boaz says, no problem at all. I have the paperwork. 
Let's get it taken care of right now in front of the elders. And so, pulls out the paperwork, gives Goober the pen, and just as the ink is about ready to touch the parchment, just as that's about ready to happen, Boaz says, oh, by the way, you probably already know this, but I just want to make sure it's absolutely crystal clear. The moment you sign that paper, the property becomes yours, and responsibility for Naomi becomes yours, and also Naomi, because she has a daughter-in-law, Ruth, who was the wife of Malan, her son, Elimelech's son, who also died. They didn't have any children. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, says that you're going to need to marry Ruth for the sole purpose of siring a male offspring so that that child can grow up and take over all the property that you're pouring all of your money and all of your resources and all of your treasure and all of your time into getting. You're not going to get any of that out of it. That child is going to get out of it because that's going to be your responsibility at the celebrate duty according to De- Deuteronomy 25 verse 25. Do you want to do that? <laughs> and when he says that, and he did say that, in fewer words than I just said it. (laughs) When he says that, Goober drops the pen and he says, holy polygamy Batman, I can't do this. I I can't do this. I I can't do this. What? I I can't do this. Because this will dilute my holdings. I've got other children and and, and, and to include this other person, this other child, it's just going to threaten my estate. I I cannot do it. See see verse 6, it says, I cannot do it. That's the point. I can't do it. And at that moment, Boaz says, may I have your sandal? May I have your sandal? Carl, do you mind? Thank you. Thank you. Boaz. See, they didn't use paper and pen back then. They conducted transactions with sandals. Don't you see that? Well, look. Now, in earlier times in Israel, verse 7, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took out the sandal and gave it to the other. This was a method of legalizing transactions in Israel. That's how it was done. I think it was based on Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. You can look that up later, which tells you that this was written quite a bit after Deuteronomy 25 since the reminder had to be given. So Boaz gets, gets the transaction here, holds up the sandal, and says, you are witnesses to the leading elders. You're witnesses of this. I have, this land is mine. It's mine by destiny. It's mine by redemption. I've purchased this from Elimelech, And the proceeds will go to Naomi to support her. And I will take responsibility for producing an offspring so that Elimelech's line will continue. And I will do that by marriage through Ruth the Moabitess. You're witnesses of this. And the elders all say, we're witnesses of this, you see. It's official indisputable the transaction has taken place and the elders then give this blessing may the Lord make this young woman uh, as uh, Rachel and Leah two uh, 
two matriarchal rock stars in the pantheon of Hebrew history. These two women, Rachel and Leah, who who built up the line of, of Israel. Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel, came through Rachel and Leah. My goodness, Ruth is being compared, Moa, Moabite at that, to these incredible matriarchs. And, and then also the elders say, and may she be like Tamar, who in Genesis 38 was also an outsider, an immigrant, you see. And, and she had, well, quite a steamier story if you've ever read Genesis 38. You can read that when you get home too. The point being, if someone like Tamar, who was a part of a really steamy story, made it to the pantheon of uh, matriarchs in Hebrew history, my goodness, Ruth, whose story is much cleaner, see, comparatively, oh my, oh my. And, well, that takes us to verse 13, where I just read earlier. Thank you, Carl. The marriage took place. And it's interesting, isn't it? Isn't it? Don't you find it interesting that the book of Ruth does not conclude with a newlywed couple going on a Mediterranean cruise? Huh? How does the book conclude? The book concludes with a grandmother cradling a grandchild. And the book concludes with joy of these women who said of this grandmother and to this grandmother, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. They're not talking about Boaz. They're talking about the baby. This baby, may may this baby become famous in Israel. May this baby renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And Naomi took the child, cared for him. Women there said, Naomi has a son. Because legally, legally, see, The child was Naomi's in terms of sonship and being heir and continuing the line. And they named him Obed. Obed, which is short for Obadiah, servant of Yahweh. Servant, that was his name. He would serve Naomi by taking care of her and continuing the family line. And of course, we now learn that Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, Israel's greatest king. So this baby was famous. His grandson was Israel's greatest king. Wow. (laughs) So what's the hesed? Hesed, we've said, is loving kindness and 
mercy and grace and steadfast love. What's the hesed here? Here it is. Last lesson on hesed from the book of Ruth. Church family, hesed is this. Hesed is a selfless, radical act which produces a tremendous ripple effect. That's hesed. A selfless, radical act which produces a tremendous ripple effect. A selfless, radical act. We can see this in Boaz, can't we? I mean, he had absolutely nothing to gain personally by marrying Ruth and redeeming the land. All of it was going to cost him. All of it. And and, and this will will be a not-for-profit act of love as far as Boaz is concerned. Boaz will dilute his own estate for his other children. And chances are, though unstated, Boaz would have had other children because that phrase, man of standing, refers to someone you know, who is a, a, a patriarch, who has spiritual capital, social capital, familial capital, uh, a commercial capital. He was a man of standing. But Boaz did not try to protect himself or his holdings by ignoring the needs of Naomi. He didn't crunch the numbers and say, can I afford this? Rather, his question was, can I help her? Can I help her? And as a result of his selflessness, this radical act of love, that's what we remember. And as for Goober, as for so-and-so, how is he remembered? He's remembered as a penny-pinching cheapskate. I mean, mean, Ruth and Naomi had been back at least two months before this conference took place at the city gates, all right? He, so-and-so, Mr. So-and-so knew when they had arrived, Bethlehem's not that big. And he knew that he was the closer kinsman redeemer. What was he doing? Well, he was doing nothing. That's what he was doing because he didn't want to have to ante up. He didn't want to have to help. We don't even know the guy's name. He's a forgotten man, and that's his punishment. His namelessness is his judgment for his selfishness. By refusing to build up the name of his relative, his own name is forever forgotten in the pages of salvation history. And my guess is is that Mr. So-and-so's family is happy that he remains anonymous because they don't want to have to be associated with his chintziness, you see. Is there a lesson for us here as a church family? Is there, I hope, Sometimes we evaluate or we're tempted to evaluate. Let me put it that way. Sometimes we're tempted to evaluate our involvement in evangelism or missions or ministries of mercy. And, and ever so subtly, we kind of adopt the attitude of Mr. So-and-so in the question, well, what's in it for me? What's in it for us? Will it fulfill me? Will I enjoy it? Will it be an opportunity for me to express my giftedness and my passions? And when we do that, we make the same mistake as Mr. So-and-so. We do. We do. We, we get the answers as completely wrong as he did because we've left God entirely out of the equation. You see, Mr. So-and-so's problem was that he insisted that two and two can only ever equal four. But in God's economy, 
His calculus is two plus two is not four. Two plus two is a thousand or a million or a billion. That's two plus two. It's called new math. It's the math of God's calculus. It's the math in which the way to fullness comes through emptiness. And that's the gospel of Ruth. And if you don't get that or love that or embrace that, you're not going to get Christianity. You won't because that's the gospel. Did not our Lord say that if you want to find your life, you're going to have to what? Lose your life. If you want to live, you're going to have to die. If you want to lead, you're going to have to serve. If you want to be first, you have to be last. Christianity is about selfless, radical acts. Listen, when Boaz married Ruth, he didn't know for sure that they were going to have a son. He didn't. But he did it anyway. Why? Because that's what chesed does. Chesed is a selfless, radical act. It's a selfless, radical act which by God's power produces tremendous ripple effects. You see, this, this story ends with more than just the rescue of two widows, right? It does. There's more to what's going on than that. Remember Ruth chapter one, verse one? This is the period of the judges. This is the period of intense uncertainty in Israel's history. Uh, the last verse of the book of Judges, perhaps one of the saddest verses in the Bible. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what he thought was right in his own eyes. But during that dark period, God was at work in, in unseen ways. God has two hands. He has the visible hand of miracle, and he has the invisible hand of his providence. And he is at work. Sometimes he works through the parting of the Red Sea. And here in the book of Ruth, he works through a famine. He works through a harvest. He works through a dark midnight threshing floor. He works in the middle of a, of, of a, of a public meeting at the city gates. God is doing his work. What's he doing? Well, in those days, Israel had no king. God is at work producing a king for his people. This is not a steamy Hebrew romance novel. Look how it ends. Boaz and Ruth aren't seen at the top of the floor of the Empire State Building. They're not even in the picture. Just a grandmother and her grandson who would, who would, who, who would be the grandfather of Israel's King David. Obed, David's grandfather. And I tell you, David's life would be marked by stories of bitterness and suffering and difficulty, stories that he would need to remember and own in his heritage when he personally would experience hardship and difficulty, you see. Remember Psalm 23? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy hand, they comfort me. That's David's voice. That's David's own words. But Naomi's in the background. Ruth is in the background. 
you see. He had a heritage of faith. Um, I've showed you this before. I'll show it again. This little Bible here, when I prepare for our time here on Sunday, you know, I have Bibles, and this is one of them. And this particular Bible here is a pocket New Testament. And the name on it here in the inside front cover is Louis Roscoe Phillips. Louis Roscoe Phillips. We don't name our kids Louis Roscoe Phillips anymore, do we? Whatever happened to Roscoe? Love that name. Louis Roscoe Phillips of Plaid, Missouri. It's dated November the 5th, 1918. That's when, that's when my grandfather received this Bible. November the 5th, 1918. Remember what was going on in the world then? World War I. He was about ready to be mustered out to serve. And six days later, the armistice was signed. And he didn't have to, uh, he didn't have to die in the trenches. He survived. And here I am. Now, you know, 94 years later, huh? Wow. So I think about my grandfather's faith and how that's been handed down to me. What's your heritage? See, what's your heritage? David would have that heritage as king of Israel. This incredible family history, this incredible family story. David wrote Psalm 23, but can you hear Naomi's voice? I guess the lesson that I'm trying to communicate is church family you know, when you feel as empty as Naomi and when you feel as bitter as Naomi and when you feel as attacked as Naomi, you should not stuff your feelings or vent your feelings. You should pray your feelings just like Naomi. And, and when you do that, when you pray your bitterness and pray your emptiness, Please understand that while you are doing that, your heavenly Father is at work in a thousand mundane ways finding solutions to problems you didn't even know existed. While you're praying your bitterness, would you please understand that your heavenly Father is at work answering questions you haven't even thought of asking. Your heavenly Father is at work healing hurts that you haven't even felt. That's how far he is ahead of you. Naomi had no idea that this baby she was cradling in her arms would be at the center of God's plan to save the world so he's not just thinking about Ruth and Naomi. And furthermore, he's not just thinking about the nation of Israel. He's thinking about the world. Because through Israel, all nations would be blessed. You see, Ruth would take her place in the gospel of Matthew's genealogy in Matthew 1 as an ancestor of Israel's Messiah. 
It's like all of the difficulty and all the bitterness and all the suffering in this story seems to be designed to get this woman in the genealogy. To, to, we we got to get a Moab into the genealogy of Christ. Why? She was an idol worshiper before God pursued her. She doesn't deserve this. No. But Hesed is ultimately Hesed because it comes from the throne of God. And through Ruth's offspring, another baby in Bethlehem would be born years later. A baby who would give the ultimate hesed. God was preparing not just a king, but the king of kings. Because only God can be king of his people. And so he came in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And we are recipients of his said, Ruth, the Moabite, is in the genealogy because we're Moabites. We're Moabites. We're the outsiders who have received the ultimate selfless act through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I've told you this before. Our mission as a church is to be a life-changing community passionately pursuing Christ. And the reason why that's our mission is because Jesus had a mission. And his mission was to passionately pursue you and me to the glory of his Father. You You know what that is? That's chesed. Amen.